Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Well, good morning. We're so glad you're here. My name's Mike. Welcome to our community. If you're new, we, um, we take some time every week to uh, dive into the words of Jesus. Are you eating, John? What? 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 Dude, I hear the wrinkle. There's no food or drink allowed, it says somewhere in France. I don't know if it says that. What are you eating? A sandwich. All right. Enjoy. That's fine. That's fine. What time did you wake up this morning? 8.30? So there maybe would have been time for a sandwich prior to this. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'm sorry I even brought this up right now. No, this is John, and he's awesome, and he's eating a sandwich. Never mind him. Now... Today, we are gonna, we're wrapping up kind of a, a pretty long series for us uh, in the words of Jesus um, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 called the Upside Down Kingdom. And way back in January, Jesus was showing up and preaching the reality that the kingdom of God has come near. And we asked the natural question, what is the kingdom of God and what does it mean that it has come close to us? And then Jesus goes throughout Judea and Galilee preaching the good news of the kingdom. Well, what did that preaching, what, what did that preaching consist of? Well, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 kind of shows us some of what that preaching consisted of. That the kingdom of God has come and it is inaugurated a fresh uh, understanding of what God originally intended in giving the Torah to Israel. And that there were some abuses that had crept in about understanding righteousness and so on. And so Jesus, while at the same time showing us the heart of Torah, he is undercutting some of the religious teaching of the religious leaders about what it was to be um, justified and righteous in God's sight. And so we've spent Matthew 5 and 6 kind of looking at those critiques. In Matthew 7, Jesus starts dealing with what is it that gets in the way of loving other people the way that he has been portraying, and the number one thing that gets in the way of that is? What have we been talking about the last couple of weeks? Judgment. Judgment. It's hard to love people and judge them at the same time. And so in Matthew 7, 1, this is review, by the way. He says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, do you remember what the word for judge is there? Crino, exactly, look at you guys, absolutely, Crino. And the word just means to distinguish or appraise or to separate. And it's used in a good way and in a bad way. In the, the bad way is what Jesus is referring to here, um, which is the judgment that leads to condemnation. I observe something about somebody's actions and I render a verdict about their worth or their character. That leap is the, is the bad crino. It's the judgment that condemns and labels. It separates people not just things or ways of behaving. And the thing about this kind of judgment, according to Jesus, is that it boomerangs back on us. Do not judge, or you too will be judged for whatever measure you use. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So there's this boomerang effect 
of condemnation, would you agree? And would you agree that condemnation isn't an incredibly effective strategy to get people to change their behavior? Would you agree with this? Yes. So, so as, a way, as a way of straightening others out, condemnation is not at all effective. In fact, it usually results in them judging us in return. Make sense? Perfect. There is a good crino, though, and Jesus introduces that good crino, what we call discernment or wisdom, in uh, verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust? So this is some sin, some wrong, some offense that is a speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. And remember, the implication of brother here is that this is all taking place in the community of disciples. The only verdict we render about people is that they are of unsurpassable worth. But there are times in the church community where we begin to distinguish and appraise and separate different ways of living. Some are aligned with the kingdom, some are not. This is done in the context of the church. So why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank or the two by four in your own? And the beautiful image that Jesus is giving here is that even if you were to exercise good crino, who was the object of your good crino first? You, yourself, right? And that whatever sin I see in other people, it's, it's a speck of dust compared to my own. So imagine a community of people who all believe that they're the biggest sinner in the community confronting each other. That would be so gentle and so kind without any hint of superiority. That's the idea. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye, pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when the, all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, oof. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And there are some people that think the plank literally is just the act of judging and condemning. So literally, you cannot judge people and see them clearly enough to be helpful. So there's a good crino that is exercised when we in the inside of, of relationship with each other, can separate good ways of living and, and not aligned with kingdom ways of living. But there's a bad crino, of course, that, that is what really comes naturally to us. And we have a hard time always separating the two. We always think our crino is good crino, right? That's the point. Jesus then introduces a saying that I think is really misunderstood, but it's connected to the same idea about judging. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, <laughs> the traditional way this verse is read when it's abstracted from its context is, listen, guys, you have treasures to give. Don't give them to people who aren't worthy of them, right? There are people who won't appreciate your treasures. There are people who aren't worthy of your treasures. So just don't do that. But if that's, if that's what Jesus meant, it totally contradicts what he says verses earlier when he talks about how God shows kindness to the worthy and the unworthy alike. So this isn't about how great my treasures are and how unworthy people are of them. Because that's just engaging in the bad kind of crino. Do you see that? Yep. Yep. So what's at issue here, and even the construction in, uh, of this sentence in the Greek language, 
makes it similar to the, the first two sentences. So the first two sentences, the Greek imperatives are do not lest you. You see that in verse one and in verse two. Here, the same imperatives, it's the same way. Do not lest you, which means that this is connected to the context before it. And the context before it is all about Crino, correct? So if, 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 if we're ruling out the idea that there aren't people that are worthy of my treasure, right, because that would be bad Crino, then what's left for us to assume is that what Jesus is dealing with isn't the worthiness or unworthiness of dogs and pigs, although in other contexts, pigs and dogs are not commended, but it's the unhelpfulness of my treasure to them. The issue is that my, tre my treasure isn't helpful. And as a result, it's rejected and it boomerangs back too. Notice, so bad crino boomerangs back because whatever measure you use to crino others, it will be crinoed to you. But I have good crino, right? I'm full of good crino. And the idea that Jesus is offering here really strikes against the normal way we understand this passage. But it's the idea of pushing my good crino on others when it's not helpful. Have you ever experienced this? Have you ever had somebody good crino you and just let you know about all their good crino for you and about you? Hello? Absolutely. And so Jesus is talking about two different strategies about how we relate to people. We can either condemn them to try to get them to straighten out or we can try to manipulate them by pushing our good crino on them. Does this make sense? So the issue here, even though the, the verse is like, what? Do not give to dogs what is sacred. The idea is, yes, we do have our treasures, we do have our crinos, the, the, but the temptation, just like with condemnation, is to think that we can straighten people out, even using good crino. An example of that? The, the issue, okay, so, so good crino. Um, um, all right, so I, I have a long string of personal trainers who come up to me and say, hey, I would love to personal train you. And I'm like, why, first of all? Like, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> and then, and then they'll, say, and they'll say, listen, I'll do it for free. And, and they'll just keep coming at me with this offer. And, and there's, it makes me uneasy. Like there, it feels like there's a pushiness to it or an agenda to it, you know what I mean? And there's, there's an impl implied superiority that they're, they're something I'm not, which is true, it's not just implied, but there's, a, there's, there's something there that just feels kind of weird to me and I don't receive their crino as opposed to the crino of say some of my best friends who are like hey why don't we start going to the gym together or whatever that's a whole different feel relationally than it is from somebody I don't know who's like crinoing me does that make sense is that a good example we parents we do this with our kids all the time hey I have great crino for my kids and the temptation is always to push that crino, even when we see that it's not well received. John, as always, with the first question, post sandwich. Yes. <laughs> right. 
Yes, so that's a great question, John. So is there a difference between the crino that comes from people who are close to you and the crino that comes from strangers? Absolutely. But even the people closest to you can push, correct? See, this whole text is building up to what Susie's gonna cover next week, which is treat others the way you wanna be treated. Right, that's the rule. What does it mean to love your neighbor? Everything that you would do for you, do for them. That simple, that's the summation of the law. That's what this whole thing is building to. And so the idea that I don't, I don't respond well to condemnation, so why would I condemn others? I don't respond to Nagy Crino, so why would I exercise Nagy Crino with others? Now, there's a place and a time, of course, and we've talked a bit about that last week, where Crino should be exercised even if it's welcome or not. Absolutely. But for a lot of us, I mean, put it in the parental parents, the idea of pushing religion on our kids, these are our treasures, it's the gospel. Like, eternity is at stake. And very often that can cause us to act in ways that go against what it is that Jesus has instructed us in how it is that we're to relate to each other as image bearers. So great question. I, so for me, it's either really far away people will do this or people really close. And if you're married, who is object of crino number one? Well, it's usually your spouse. And then when you have children, you unite against them. <laughs> and it's wonderful. Your spousal, like, you, all of a sudden you're a team now and crinoing somebody else instead of each other. It's awesome. Great question. Any, anything else along these lines? How do we avoid reverse that? How do we avoid judging the person that we think is judging us? Oh, heck yeah. Because who, if someone were to say, hey, who does Mike Erie love to judge? Besides, well, no, no Michigan football jokes. But um, I love to judge the judgers. And right? And that's impossible to do because you've just become one of them. So the mechanism of crinoing. So I feel like, and people in public roles get this all the time, right? You're always being crinoed. I'm sitting up here being crinoed, fine. Um, there is a, a sense in which <laughs> that the crino I pay most attention to is the crino from people who are really close to me and love me, and the rest I've just learned to sort of discount. The, the getting to the place though where I don't judge people back has been one of the harder tasks in Christian discipleship. And there's, there's a whole kind of mode of living that I try to practice. I'm the biggest sinner in the room, so even the judgments, I'm, I'm a bigger sinner than they are. And then just saying, God, that person is of unsurpassable worth. God, that person is of unsurpassable worth. Or praying for them consistently. God, would you bless them, bless them, bless them. And none of these things I feel like doing, but they actually adjust and tenderize my heart to them in some way. I also sometimes will imagine backstories that build sympathy and compassion, because you know there is one, right? You don't, people just don't get condemning out of nowhere. They learned it somewhere. Sure. Yeah, did I miss your question entirely? Okay, because I'm capable of that in very good detail. Yeah, yes, I think that's an excellent point. Anything else on this? It's such a tough 
such a tough thing to kind of walk in because even our good crino can boomerang back, right? Do you draw close to people who are nagging you? Do you, let me just ask, I mean, this is obvious, but do you ever respond well to people who come at you with an agenda? Then why do we think that's the way we are to present Christ? Nobody responds well to the condemnation or the crino, which rules out a lot of the methods of evangelism that we employ. Because what's at issue here that I think is super, super important, that Jesus is kind of addressing all the way through this, is that we become convinced that there are things that are so important to Jesus's agenda that, we're, that we cease being Christian in order to accomplish them. So, so, and this is such a big point. Men and women, the way that Christian identity is conceived of is that we are people on crosses. Okay, we have renounced our rights, we have died to self, we've accepted the agenda of Jesus. The non-manipulative presence of the kingdom of God in the world. And yet, there are things that come up, whether it's abortion, or whether it's gay pride, or whether it's the Democrats, or the Republicans, or whatever. There's something that comes up that is of such importance that we can totally disregard the commands of Jesus just to make it succeed. And any time the commands of Jesus are seen as an impediment to the work of Jesus, then we've missed it, right? So the way Jesus conceives of image, bearer, image bearers relating to each other, he talks about in the next verse. Fire up verse seven. Now, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Stop right there if you would, Joe. What's that talking about? That's what I always thought. That's talking about prayer. But is it? Is it? What's the context? Crino. So the passage ends in talking about prayer, but I'm following Dallas Willard here who suggests this isn't about prayer, this is about how humans are to relate to each other. Instead of condemning and instead of manipulating and pushing, we're to commit to the ministry of asking and inviting. Ask, it will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. And think about this. Willard, in The Divine Conspiracy, has this incredible section of his book on the power of requesting. And it's no wonder this gets attached to prayer because Jesus attaches it in a couple of verses. But think about how it is that we get work done in the world. Right, so I look at my little guy, Seth. Seth is 13, he has Down syndrome. Seth it manages to get a lot done in the world even though his understanding isn't always top-notch and even though his physical power and coordination isn't always top-notch. How does Seth get his way in the world? What does Seth do? Perpetually asks. <laughs> Relentlessly asks. And that is how image bearers learn to cooperate with each other. To ask and at times, keep asking, although that can be a pushy crino too, right? But Seth is relentless in asking for what he wants. That is how his will is being shaped about how he functions in the world, correct? 
So Seth doesn't have a lot of direct power, but he has asking. So what's fascinating is that the predominant way, this is where I think Jesus is building to what Susie's going to talk about, the predominant way people are to relate to each other isn't through the lens of condemnation and isn't through the lens of manipulative, pushy crino. It's by asking, seeking, and knocking. Inviting, in other words. Posturing ourselves to honor the dignity of others and allowing their no to be a real no, even though we think the stakes are super high. Are you with me on this? And then he says, for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, the one who knocks the door will be open. Now we instantly apply this to prayer, but he's not talked about prayer yet. See, the biggest, the biggest mistake we do in reading the words of Jesus is, th- is we don't think they're connected to the words that are around it. So we just pull this thing and say, well, why doesn't God you know, do this? Willard would argue, no, no, this is about the power of requesting. Requesting has so much power in our world. Literally, somebody looks at you and asks you directly for help. There are all sorts of social pressures to say yes in that moment, correct? When Seth asks for the fifth juice juice box, maybe we would say no, but then he says, for me? Yes. Yes, you could have more sugar next. Now Jesus begins to take this power of request and applies it If it's true of human relationships, how much more is it true of God? Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? You know how requesting works, in other words. Next. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. Next. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give gifts to each other, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So what's the point of that second part of text? The power of asking and inviting. The non-manipulative, mutual asking. That is how we treat other image bearers. And why does that work? Sometimes, it's because it's the way we want to be treated. And so if love is loving people the way we want to be loved, there you go. All right, any thoughts on all this? Yes. Yeah, oh, great question. The question is, do you sometimes feel split between your mind having bad crino and your heart having good crino? And what would we say? Yeah. That's where we got the saying, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? Is that, is that, because we do this all the time with ourselves, right? I hate all my sin, but I still love me. For me? Yes, Seth, yes. Yeah, so I think, that, I think that's actually pretty common. And the idea is that we become convinced to the point where that we become convinced of the fact that God is at work and the only work that is Jesus' work is the work that's done in Jesus' way. 
of showing kindness to the worthy and unworthy alike, of radical generosity and mutual blessing and friendship, right? When we become convinced of that, then I cease being anxious in my attempts to have to condemn people or push my crino on them, and instead can simply live a life of invitation. You know what I mean? So it's not a huge problem that we instantly go to judge or we instantly have good crino toward them. I think you being aware of that is actually a great first step, right? Kevin has made this point several times where just waking up to the fact that I'm a condemnation factory is a, is a huge deal. So I don't think that's a bad thing that you have that, that tension. But I think what Jesus would say is that love isn't ever an eternal, internal emotion. It's willing the good of another in action. Anything else on this? Yes, ma'am. Right. No, you're not missing, it's this, this one's on me, I wasn't clear about that. Thank you for asking for clarification, for sure. No, no, it's how, there are three ways uh, I can approach somebody who I see needs help. I see that they need straightening out. I see that uh, there's something, there's a speck in their eye. One way is to condemn them. One way is to push my crino on them. And another way is to invite them to reconsider their way of life. And so the, it's not asking for me, it's asking and inviting them into a different way of living. This is all about how it is that we treat each other. John, yes, you're awesome. Sure, even inviting can be weaponized, yeah. Yeah. And so like, where's the, where's the kind of lesson there in like your thought and experience with the other people? Like, yeah. Where are you pointing with maybe those kind of, like I think that's what kind of smarter about this process is people who are close to you but who are maybe a little bit off. Yeah. And you feel partially either are they right or am I wrong? Right, right. Right. So where's the, where's the line in crinoing um, between, oh man, you said so much. Uh, say it again. So he can repeat it. Right, so the crino can be weaponized, right? So have you been invited, asked, but there's a clear agenda behind the asking? What's that? Yes, yes, I challenge you to, yes. An invite with an agenda, absolutely. Right, so even inviting, just the mere act of inviting doesn't solve the problem, especially if you're inviting with a, that same sense of superiority. See, what Jesus is trying to get rid of is anything that places me over another person. So even in inviting, I can do that, right? So there are ways of inviting that seem to be 
promote flourishing and mutual friendship, and there are ways of inviting that seem to promote that same sort of like bad crino where I'm above you, right? Because, I mean, and one of the ways that you can distinguish between the two is, is the object of the invitation we, or is the object of the invitation you, right? If the object of the invitation is, well, you need, or I invite you to, instead of, hey, I think we should, that's a different, that already has a different feel to it. Great question. There's a uh, text question. Jacques, I'll get to you in a second. Yes. Um, when does not judging it become condoning the damage they're doing? When does not judging it become condoning the damage they're doing? Boy. There certainly is a point where that happens, correct? There are, there are instances, in, and the Bible has a couple, a couple doozies, where the harm done um, to the community is such that direct intervention must be done. And in one case, Paul says, remove the person from the church entirely. So when are there times? Uh, are there times to do that? Yes. When are they? Man, the, I don't know. I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. I think that that's decided in community. You know, if we're just all doing this by ourselves, we are in trouble. So one of the great things about being together in community is that you know, I, I think when harm gets to the place where it's spilling over, there are times that things have to be done whether or not they're welcomed. And it's not just an invitation of, hey, would you reconsider? It's an invitation of, no, no, we have to stop this, and which one of us is going to do that? Great question, and I'm no expert on this stuff. Guys, I'm still just processing it. I just, I want us to feel the weight of all these tensions, Right? because it's so natural for us to live in these ways. So, uh, oh, did you have another one? Yeah, there's another one. Okay, another one, and then we'll go to Jacques. So if this is true, it's easy to see how the evangelical church has lost its way and become so ineffectual. How do we share our faith and not sound like every other evangelical? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Man, and here we go. Um, oh boy, we have four minutes left on the sermon clock. You don't need to look at it, just trust me, it's four minutes. Some of that will be addressed next week? Oh, excellent. It'll be addressed next week, guys. But you should take a stab at it. I should take a stab, okay. Um, first of all, we have to radically re-understand what the gospel is. The gospel isn't praying a prayer in private about, uh, to a Jesus who doesn't care about how I live, about what happens to my sins after I die. We've talked a lot about this. The gospel is the reality of the kingdom of God here reshaping us into fully human image bearers, picking up that original vocation of blessing and cooperation with God in the world. That's the salvation we're evangelizing to. Second thought, we cannot... Uh, use the, the methods of condemnation or um, pushing our good, our good things, sit, coming at people with an agenda. Um, I think all of that, I, I think, of course, God can use anything, and there are times that like, what starts out is like, I'm just saying yes to praying to Jesus to get you off my back, could turn into something real, absolutely. But I look at the way that Jesus evangelized and I see him as a presence of blessing in the world prior to anything else. 
and that there are times to talk, but as you know, we've all heard thousands of times, the invitation for us is to exercise crino on me to the point where I trans- am transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, and that image of Jesus will draw itself. And so I, I wanna be very careful, and then when I'm sharing uh, my faith, which I do verbally, and there are obviously times for that, I'm the object of the salvation pitch, not them. So I will just simply say, so here's what I began to realize. There's this great story that begins with God's goodness over the world and his declaration that it's good. And then there's this recognition that somehow, somewhere, it all went wrong. And I see that, I see that in me, not just out there in the world, but I see that in me. And the Christian story is the story that God has visited the earth in the person of Jesus to remind us what it is to be fully human and to take up the vocation he'd given us. And that Jesus absorbed and put to an end to the momentum of evil so that then I might be part of the new creation project he's launched. Like that's, I'm the object of that story. It's not what they should be doing. Let alone any, any um, gospel conversation that begins with, hey, have you lusted? Then you've committed adultery. Hey, have you ever coveted? Then you're a coveter. Hey, look, you've broken the commandments. You're guilty, so here's Jesus. I just think that is, you don't see any of the apostles ever doing anything like that. Great question, which will be better answered by Susie next week. No pressure. All right, Jacques, last one. Who are they? Well, in this case, so, so part of the interpretive background that's, that it's given us fits about this text is that dogs... Um, and pigs are used pejoratively in other places in uh, the Jewish writings of the day and in the, the ministry of Jesus. And so the reason the passage has always been interpreted like, well, hey, don't give to what's unworthy because pigs were unclean and dogs were not welcome. <laughs> um, and so, and some have even thought that what Jesus is doing here is actually talking about the gospel, like we're gonna to go to the Jews first and not the Gentiles because Gentiles were often called dogs back in the day. So in this text though, because of the reasons we spent just a brief time on, I think what Jesus is doing here is using dogs and pigs as animals in contrast to treasure. So it's not about worth or unworth, it's about how literally unhelpful pearls would be to pigs. I mean, it's just the dumbest thing in the history of the world and it's no wonder that that would boomerang back. Is there one more, Suze? There's a couple more. Okay, all right. Um, 15 seconds on the sermon clock, go. Love this discussion, but disagreement isn't judgment, correct? I can disagree with your choices, but not judge them. Boy, that's the trick, isn't it? That's the trick. Um, Can I disagree with someone's choices and still love them? Yeah. But it gets a little, little fuzzy, at least for me. Now, again, I'm no expert on this stuff. But the whole um, hate the sin, love the sinner, see, in that instance, my focus is still on their sin. And I want to be the kind of person who is always primarily focused on my own. And then if I see something, the, the mode that I'm operating in isn't a mode that is somehow I'm superior, but it's a mode that would simply come under somebody else and say, hey, I see that this is a struggle, I have had this same struggle or a struggle like it, and let's work together 
um, to proceed in this because I need the help too. Do you see the difference? That's what you get in like um, uh, support groups. Everyone, you know everyone in a support group is struggling with exactly what you're struggling with. That's why grace can be found there so more readily than often in the church. And so for me, I just don't, I want the inner disposition not to be looking around at other people's sin. I want the inner disposition to be constantly aware of how it is that I'm condemning and trying to manipulate instead of invite. And out of that flow, I can approach people without any hint of superiority. Last one, in the minus se- one minute on in, the sermon class. In the setting of boundaries with others, what would love look like as a result of harsh pushback to those boundaries? What would love look like? Man, that's a great question. So are boundaries bad? No, I don't think so. Loving people. Boundaries are a way of loving. I think that's true, absolutely. Um, and add anything you want to this, Susie, because this isn't, um, I'm not, I'm not good enough around this to really speak with any sort of authority on it, but I want to honor the question by saying, You're good enough, Mike. And people like me, Susie. (laughs) Yes. Now, um, uh, I would say um, boundaries can be an expression of love and protection, or they can be an expression of control, and I can't read that for anybody else. I think there are times when we absolutely have to protect ourselves from harm or our families from harm, and boundaries are absolutely critical to the whole project of agape love, absolutely. And then I've also used them in ways that try to control and manipulate others to change. And so I can't read that for anybody else. Yes, ma'am, last one. Yeah. The, so there's a difference between a boundary and an ultimatum. Yeah, it's just basically saying like... What well, seems the focus of the boundary is me. Exactly. And the focus of the ultimatum is you. Yeah. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Yes. So, so what Jesus, and, and I think that this raises such a great point, and this is what we're all struggling with, at least drowsiness or this, um, <laughs> that, that there is no rule, right? There, see, our inner Pharisee wants a line. How do I know when? And there's no such thing. It is a constant life of looking and immersing ourselves in the life of Jesus and his practices and then implementing those with all of the road bumps internally and the divisions in me uh, and the recognition I'm never going to arrive, but I have and I will continue to make progress because there's just no line for this. And so, I mean, to be honest, I see this most in marriage. So I've been married almost 20, what year is it? 22, 22 years, I got married in 2000, so it's easy. Um, and I've noticed as we mature in, in our love how all the strings attached the previous iterations of love was, right? I just thought, oh, no, I'm here loving my, and serving my wife. No, 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 what I was doing is loving myself 
through her, you know, and, and crinoing all the time. And, and there's no line there, but I began to notice, oh, okay, if I really loved her, I would like what she likes. I would, and, and some of you are like, yeah, no, 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 duh. But this is, you know, this was news to me. Like, I don't mock country music, I support it, which is still a struggle. But the longer we're walking with Jesus, the more clearly I begin to see all the ways my love isn't really love, even remotely. And so what Jesus sets out for us isn't some line that we cross, but rather rethinking a pattern of a life about how we relate to each other. And that's where I think it's endlessly fascinating. We could talk about this for weeks and not cover all the what ifs. The biggest point though this morning is this. We have to forsake thinking that there are issues so important that we can cease acting Christianly because of. That's our act of repentance today. The act of repentance for me is that I think our, the future of our country's at stake or eternity's at stake or something's at stake and so I can cease acting in a cruciform way because of what's at stake. The, the, the issue for a lot of us isn't, be, isn't, isn't becoming Christian, it's staying Christian. And so what we're invited to put off, like put, put aside all the whatabouts, what we're invited to put off is the thought, I mean, and if you hear this, you're like, well, how would we get anything done if we did it Jesus's way? And again, I would reply, if Jesus's commands are getting in the way of what you think Jesus's agenda is, then we've lost it completely. So our repentance this morning, at least for me, I don't know for you, but my repentance this morning is I'm gonna go, and I'm gonna take a piece of paper, I'm gonna write the thing that I think is so important that I'm willing to stop being Christian for. And I'm gonna take the bread and the cup as a reminder of what it is to be Christian. I'm gonna put down that issue and pick up a cross-shaped life, and I'll have to do it every single week. But that's our act of repentance. And so we just invite you into that this morning. So if the band would come up, as always, you guys are amazing, and again, oof, thank you for asking the questions, because literally I was done after 20 minutes. Like, literally, I had no more sermon points to, to make, so we'd be, we could be at lunch right now if it wasn't for you guys. Um, no, I'm just teasing, so thank you. This is Kevin. Invite, oh, yes, oh, and always, thank you, Kevin. Kevin leads a discussion group. Uh, at 11, out those doors to the left in the big kind of overflow room, and that always becomes very fruitful too. So, I uh, want to invite you to the Lord's table today. I want to invite you to journal, to pray, to sing, or whatever it is, uh, however it is that God would lead you to respond. Let me pray, and we'll just take this time together. Father, thank you um, that we get to wrestle with these ancient words together. And I thank you that they stir us up so much and invite us into something other than normal. Lord, I love being a part of this community and I love wrestling and struggling with these things. And I pray, God, that you would plow up our hearts and that you would open them up to a, a reimagine ways of relating to each other out, outside of the normal ways that we relate. And I pray, God, we would begin to get a vision for how it is that you love us and we might just slowly and progressively learn to love like that towards others. So Jesus, receive our repentance this morning. We receive your gift of grace and mercy in the bread and the cup this morning. 
And we pray ultimately, God, that your spirit would shape us into a community of Jesus. Amen and amen.